welcome to episode 2091 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay, and I'm guessing that you're doing okay because the GMs and the Pobos largely heard your plea and refrained from making major moves over the holiday. Largely. Largely. With an exception, of course, (laughs) and it's the predictable exception. Jerry DePoto had to make a move on Thanksgiving Eve, but at least he held off on the day itself. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Did he give uh, Mariners fans something to talk about over their Thanksgiving tables? I mean, nothing good, Mm -hmm. uh, one could argue, and I, I would do that. I'm always fascinated by, like, the uh, holiday eve news dump, Ben, Mm -hmm. because, like, on the one hand, I get it. I suppose I understand the strategy, but I also think that um, you're just giving people something to talk about without much else to, like, you know, pass the time. That's true, yeah. So why would you you do that, (laughs) you know? Yeah, those those long car trips to and from wherever you're going for Thanksgiving and then sitting yeah. at the table just doing nothing but talking. And if it's a table full of Mariners fans, maybe right. they're talking about what the Mariners offense looks like now yeah. without Eugenio Suarez. So, yeah, sort of a risky strategy. Yeah. So, so there's that. I don't um, particularly care for this trade that was made. I have thoughts about it if we want to go into them. We also, after the holiday, saw some exciting Yeah, um, we do signings. have a few moves to talk about, but nothing major enough and timed so that you had to slack anyone as they were right. sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner or you had to return to the keyboard to edit any drafts. So it worked yeah. out well. And, you know, when you are keen to avoid having to do work, it's good to sanity check your your sense of the urgency and bigness of a trade, <laughs> right? And so I consulted um, various members of the Fangraph staff, and I was like, we don't have to break in on this for this trade, right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> everyone agreed that, no, it could, it could wait till Monday. So, yeah, thank you all for generally um, deciding to spend time with your families instead of um, making me spend time with uh, my fellow staff members when they'd like to spend time with with their families, mm-hmm. their yeah. families. The the Mets hired a president of business operations. Now, do you think that that's a pobo? Because no. they already have a pobo. They have David yeah. Stearns, who's their president of baseball operations. And now they have hired this guy, M. Scott Havens, formerly of Bloomberg Media, as their president of business operations. I guess it's not atypical to have a, a business person, although sometimes they're just called the team president. I don't know if they're always called the president of business operations, probably sometimes. But if yeah. we were abbreviating, I don't know what his business card will say, but but one would have to say Popo. However, we Pobo. will probably have yeah. fewer occasions to mention M. Scott Havens right. on this podcast than, than we will, David Stearns. You never know with the Mets, but Probably M. Scott Havens hopes that we will not talk about him that much unaffectedly well. Yeah, I think that generally, if we know something about the president of business ops, something weird has happened. Yeah, um, right. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is definitely not out of the question when it comes to Mets front office executives, yeah. but <laughs> we'll hope for the best. Okay, only one Pobo. We have settled only that. Only one then. Pobo. Yeah, Good. just the one Pobo. So yeah, we do have some transactions to talk about, and I guess we might as well start with that Mariners move. So the Mariners traded with the other team that you follow closely yeah. <laughs> because it is close to you geographically, the Diamondbacks. 
Mariners traded Eugenio Suarez to the Diamondbacks for backup catcher Sebi Zavala and reliever Carlos Vargas. And I guess importantly for the Mariners, cash savings <laughs> in that those guys make less than Eugenio Suarez, which seems to have been a, a major motivation for this move. So you have thoughts. What are they? Hmm, how dramatic do I want to be? I'm trying to decide, you know, it's like you, you're catching me several days after this happens. So on the one hand, I should be rational, clear-eyed about the whole thing. But <laughs> I think being rational and clear-eyed about the whole thing might lead one to say that, like, it just feels deeply unserious to me. <laughs> and, you know, I don't dispute the internal logic of the move if what you are doing is committing to pretty meager payrolls. Yeah. I understand why if that's what you're doing and you have recently traded for like a, a versatile infielder uh, that you can just say, well, Rice can just play third base. Uh, he only costs $5 million. Eugenio Suarez is going to cost $11 million this coming year, plus a, you know, either an option or a buyout for 2025. And so, yeah, like, you know, take the the young gun who's likely to make less and has at times uh, shown promise, um, has had good seasons, although he's a bit removed from them now and was once a well-regarded prospect, right? Like, maybe that guy has something to offer still and we can help him figure it out. And, you know, maybe you look at uh, what they're getting back from the Diamondbacks and think, well, we don't want to spend money, so we're not going to bring Tom Murphy back. And, you know, he's been compromised by injury for a lot of the last two seasons. So, like, that that could be a defensible move in and of itself. So we get Zavala, we have a backup catcher to spell Cal Raleigh when needed. And, you know, we're really good at turning relievers who may have had some notable issue associated with them in the mm -hmm. past into good bullpen contributors. So maybe we can make something of Carlos Vargas, who, like, has really great stuff, but is just, you know, at times wild to the point of not really um, being able to generate any swing and miss. So, like, maybe we can make something of that guy the way we've made something of guys before, including guys we've dealt to those same Diamondbacks, right? Mm -hmm. So I understand the the internal logic of the decision, but the broader logic of the way that they're running the organization. And, like, I think that at this point, I feel pretty comfortable saying that this is as much an ownership mandate around payroll as it is like DePoto trying to red paper clip his way toward a, you know, like a lineup that can really um, bang. Mm -hmm. But $11 million is like not a lot of money. It's just mm -hmm. such a small amount of money, really. And I know that Suarez had some signs of being, you know, he's he's always been a, a big strikeout guy. And so if any of the rest of the skill set degrades and doesn't go as well, if he's not putting the ball over the fence as often, like, you know, I can appreciate why you look at that and say this guy who is two years older than Luis Arias is like pr maybe on the way to decline, but he's still a productive bat. And mm -hmm. even if you think that like, OAA was maybe too in love with his defense last year, a, a good fielder. To look at that guy and be like, that's not, that profile of player isn't worth $11 million to us. And now you're in a position where, you know, you haven't made your sort of everyday lineup appreciably better. You can argue that you've made it worse. 
you haven't upgraded sort of the bottom of the 26-man roster in a way that I think we've talked about Seattle needing to do, right? Like when when guys get hurt, which they're going to do, and like your backups are like, and I feel bad picking on the guy because he seems nice <laughs> enough, but like when, when Sam Haggerty is featuring like as prominently in your offense as he has for the Mariners over the last couple of years, like someone's not going great. This was a, a lineup that didn't produce particularly well last year outside of the guys at the very top and now isn't much better than it was. And, you know, it just seems like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what their competitive window really is. Like you have a still very young, very good Julio Rodriguez. You have mm-hmm. a largely other than I guess Castillo and, you know, Robbie Ray, who will presumably come back at some point, but not toward, not until maybe the end of this coming season. Like, much of your rotation is young and cost-controlled. This is the time for you to, like, especially if you view yourself as a budget-constrained team, like, isn't this the time when you want to spend a little bit more because you're getting so much production from other positions that are relatively inexpensive compared to the production they're putting up. And I know that like stuff starts to get more expensive, you know, next year and certainly in the years after when it comes to Julio, but like even Julio is only going to be making $12 million next season, you know, like this, this in theory should be the time when you're like, let's, let's really put some complimentary pieces around this young core and see what we can do with it because they don't have the farm system to bolster the group they already have at the big league level such that they're going to be competitive with Houston and Texas. Mm-hmm. So I just find it I just find it unserious. Like I don't find it to be, you know, commensurate with a team that is really trying to do anything more than be in the wild card mix, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not even like the best potential team in that category of team, you know. So I don't love it. I really I like it a lot. For, <laughs> I'm getting that sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't love yeah. it. Um, and and like okay, so I want to put an appropriate like disclaimer or caveat on this because I shared this revelation with a couple of people on staff, and Michael Bauman made the the excellent point that like it's. Major League Baseball, so I'm still looking for a caveat here. But I got an email yesterday, like the the marketing on the marketing side, not to media, um, from the Diamondbacks, that they have a program where you can go to every home game plus two additional exhibition games. Oh, yeah, which I'm, I saw this for two hundred and ninety nine dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure that Arizona knows one. Not everyone is going to all of the home games, right? And I'm sure they also know that even among those who are really committed to going to a bunch of games, that they're going to get upgrades within that package because you have the option to, like, you know, upgrade tickets and buy both more of them and in nicer seats. These tickets are, like, up in the upper deck. I imagine they're pretty far up there, right? But you can get in for the entire season – for $299, and famously, Ben, the Diamondbacks were just in the World Series, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, I looked on Seattle's site, and maybe I missed something. And you can certainly buy, you know, single-game tickets from the Mariners. But their most modest 
partial season season ticket package is a thousand bucks. It's a thousand dollars. And right now we estimate their payroll for next season at 133 million bucks. You know, and so I just uh, maybe there are things going on here that I don't know about yet. Maybe maybe they're having a problem with their RSN that I'm not aware of. Maybe like, I don't know, John Stanton is suddenly cash strapped or something. But, you know, if I were still living in Seattle, it would it would be hard for me to not think every time I was going to the ballpark like this is expensive. This is a pricey experience. This is clearly going well for them in terms of what they are able to secure from a gate perspective. And so what are we doing? Like, do you want people to be excited about this team? Do you want them to take you seriously when you say, we're trying to, we're trying to do the thing here. We're trying to bring a world series appearance slash championship to Seattle. Because if that is the, the, desire of this, you know, ownership group and senior leadership within the front office, this kind of stuff doesn't sell anyone on that. It reads as miserly. (laughs) And, you know, for a team that was in the postseason just two seasons ago that had great attendance, like, what are, what are you doing? You know, push your chips in. The Mariners raised season ticket prices this they past sure summer, did. right? And people were upset about that then. The team wasn't even doing that well at the time, and they were gouging seemingly. So, yeah, yeah that followed up by not making the playoffs, followed up by not raising payroll or even trimming payroll. Yes, I can understand the frustration. You did have some thoughts, but I agree with those thoughts. And you could have both Suarez and Urias, right? There would have been room for both of those guys. Yes. I see how if you had to choose between one or the other and you were looking for somewhere to save money, this might be reasonable. I actually didn't realize how young Urias still is. Yeah. He's he's 26 years old. Yeah, he's which, not uh, even 27 yet. Yeah. yeah, he's he's been around for a while. He yes. debuted very young, but Suarez, right, is what, 32? And yeah. it's, uh, I think, maybe comparable production. Certainly the projections are comparable. Maybe Urias right. even a little bit better than Suarez. So I, I get it. I certainly get it from the Diamondbacks' perspective, why they would want Suarez. You know, Evan Longoria was a bit of a drag on their pennant-winning team, right, offensively speaking. Who knows about uh, clubhouse mentorship and veteran know-how, but performance-wise. So they need to get someone, and and Suarez fits the bill. And even if he doesn't bounce back, it's still kind of an average player profile, at least, probably. You know, not bad defensively. You, You summarize that. So... So I get that move. And if it were like, well, we're trying to save a million in here or there or several million so that we can go get Shohei Otani and, you know, blow some free agents away with our big offers, then fine. But it certainly doesn't seem like that's what's happening here. So it's it's just rearranging deck chairs. I don't know if it's yeah. deck chairs. Hopefully they won't sink, but right. it's it's definitely not making them more buoyant. So yeah, it's not encouraging. Yeah, I don't think that there is a credible argument that they could make that this is in service of Otani because it's like if these are the numbers of pennies you have to pinch to cobble together an offer that like it, how serious an offer can it be, right? Like how robust is your financial future anticipated to be that this is the state that you're in. And 
This move is annoying on its own. The idea that they aren't going to be competitive for Otani or really push their chips in there is ridiculous. If for no other reason than like, you're going to make so much money if that guy is on your roster, right? And he's going to be well compensated. He's probably going to set a record for his contract. But like, when you think about the potential that you have from a merchandising perspective, from a ticket sale perspective, like all of the ancillary stuff that can, you know, sort of redound to the organization as a benefit to you when you have that guy. I think it's great for any team. I don't want to like overstate what it means for Seattle, but I do think that like they are a team. They're certainly not the only team in Major League Baseball that has a strong tradition of, you know, Japanese players on their roster, but it is part of Seattle's tradition, and I think that you can kind of lean into that. And I don't mean it in like a cynical or exploitative way, but like I think you can make a credible case if you're the Mariners that like this is the latest in a partnership between fans in Seattle and fans in Japan that you take seriously, right? Like I, I just, you know, this has turned into a different conversation than Suarez, but it's like it's indicative of a bigger problem that I don't think is being overstated, even though the the magnitude of any one of these individual moves might be small. You know, it's like when I went on my rant after the Seawald trade, I think I acknowledged like that might be a lot to pin on Paul Seawald not being <laughs> in the organization anymore. And I think that that's true. But at a certain point, you're like adding this stuff up and it points to one DePoto continuing to have a weird obsession with like light bat, versatile defender guys. And I get it. Sometimes those guys turn into dudes, but like not all of them are Willie Adamas. So like, what are we doing here? And then the broader implications it has for how they view themselves from a payroll and roster construction perspective. And if they had a you know, a farm system brimming with position player prospects. And it's like, look, we're going to sit out some of this stuff. We're going to be mindful of how we deploy payroll because we have this young group coming up and we want to sign, you know, George Kirby and Logan Gilbert to long-term extensions. And the way that we're going to deploy our payroll might is in-house. Okay. You know, they've shown a willingness to do some of that, right? I want to give them credit where it's due, where it's like they were like, you know, we're not letting Julio walk out the door as anything but a mariner, right? So there have been instances where they've spent, but it's like they're not spending a lot. There have been times where they have deployed free agent capital and like it's been kind of weird. Like, I don't know that Robbie Ray would have been my choice for the $100 million contract in this organization, right? So I, it just feels, again, it feels unserious. And I think that's a real shame because in addition to the really talented, you know, players they have on their roster now, and they do have those guys, even if they don't have as many of them as they think they need to compete in a serious way in the West or a lot from a depth perspective, like, you know, Julio's Julio. The pitching acumen is real. Um, their ability to develop guys there is substantial. Although, you know, I guess we're going to start to see if they are able to sustain sort of that excellence with some of the personnel changes that they've had on the player depth side. So all of that to say, I wish that the thing they had given Mariners fans to talk about over Turkey was like, I don't know, 
Signing Otani. <laughs> you know, if if Jerry wants to sign Otani, he can do that any time of day, and I am happy to be inconvenienced. You know, <laughs> I'm willing to to put up with that. But it just felt, you know, it didn't feel great. It doesn't seem like it portends awesome stuff for the org. And watch now this year, they're gonna go on a heater and they're gonna win a hundred <laughs> games, and mm-hmm. you know, Urias is gonna be incredible, and yep. Suarez will suck for the D-backs, <laughs> and you know, I'm gonna feel like a goober, and you know, Josh Rojas will have a great year, and Kate Marvel will have taken a step forward, and I'll be like, how could they have contemplating having anyone as their starting DH than Dominic Canzone? Like, how could I have even doubted it? <laughs> Maybe all of that will happen, but in terms of likelihood, I, I'd peg it as pretty low, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you resolved not to talk about the Mariners as much, but they're giving you reasons During to the do post-season. it. You get a pass. Yeah, okay, the season's over. The season's when over. We're there's Mariners the, news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how can you not talk how about the I Mariners? Not? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, a gag order. That's, o- that's over now. So I guess the one move that has been made that would have maybe moved you to get a transaction reaction up mm. over Thanksgiving if it had been made a little bit earlier is Sonny Gray yeah. going to the Cardinals. So we recently talked about the Cardinals restructuring their rotation and adding a couple free agent starters. And here we are again, because they have added yet another, the best of the bunch, Sonny Gray, who finished second, a distant second to Garrett Cole in AL Cy Young award voting. And Mozalek said he was going to go get three starters. And now he has. <laughs> so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they're done. It's like done before December. Okay, mission accomplished. We can talk about how well the mission was accomplished if it has been. But Sonny Gray going to the Cardinals on a three-year deal. And when we talked about them signing Lynn and Gibson, we said, okay, it's a start. It's back of the rotation types and they got to get some innings somewhere, but they really have to go get a top of the rotation type guy to complete the picture here or it's not going to be great. And I guess they have done that, (laughs) right? Sonny Gray, he is... Older, maybe, than people might think. He's uh, He just turned 34 and obviously hasn't been the most durable guy prior to this season. But he's coming off a really strong season. He has been quite effective when he has been on the mound, at least, since his Yankees stint. And he's made some major changes to his pitch mix, particularly this past season, that seemed to work out well for him. Lots more sweepers and uh, did really well with the sweeper and added or revived a cutter and a changeup and just had a really great year, which was well-timed for him. So what do you make of St. Louis's moves on the whole after the three-year $75 million deal for Sonny? I think that it moves the needle for them pretty appreciably in the two areas that they needed help the most, right? They had to backfill innings. They had to backfill innings. They were going to be so light on innings if they didn't do that. Um, And I think that, as we noted, like they needed a guy at the top who could really 
do something from a quality perspective who wasn't just a bulk guy, but who, you know, was going to be able to move the needle for them appreciably, be sort of a, you know, a, a playoff game starter um, rather than someone who gets shunted to the bullpen. And I think Gray accomplishes that. I know that there's been, you know, some back and forth, like there have been years where he has been better than others. There have been years where he hasn't been able to throw like a full complement of innings. But when you look at what he was able to do this past season, like I can certainly understand the appeal. I think that it allows them to, you know, you have Gray, you have <laughs> the lizard eater himself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have Gibson and Lynn there. You're you're way less dependent on Steven Matz being able to be healthy and effective over an entire season. And then, like, you still have room with your young guys for someone to to pop and, like, be, you know, a, an impressive addition to, you know, what what they're up to. So I like it. Do I think that they would benefit from having like one more like really really Mm -hmm. really big strikeout guy i do think that ben i do think that there's still like not as much strikeout in this rotation as i would be stoked on if i were like constructing a rotation but i do think that there are a lot of ways to arrive at very impactful production as a big league starter and you know i think gray has demonstrated an ability to do that it is kind of funny though that like it was one more dude where it's like yeah he's not like you know it's not that he doesn't strike anyone out but Mm -hmm. like he doesn't he doesn't strike out as many guys as like i don't know zach wheeler does or spencer sure they weren't available for signing so that (laughs) (laughs) might have had something to do with it you know Mm -hmm. how do you feel do you are you down on are you down on the the sunny gray of it all they've no. really they've really leaned into um uh the the puns uh, yes i know his i was name. just gonna say i have a i have a sunny outlook on him i think yeah. but i think that move in isolation is good there's yeah. a, a club option too by the way yeah, which i did not right. mention that's uh the buyout for that is, i think is included in that guaranteed figure i cited but yeah gray is good and probably underrated. It's just that there's still not that much upside in this sure. rotation or he's really the only guy who who feels like he could be a top of the rotation type and right. everyone else is just sort of there and you need guys to be there and sure do. <laughs> that can get you a lot of the way if they're reliably fine. Right. But there's some collapse risk with this group, too. I mean, you're banking on Lance Lynn not giving up the most homers. <laughs> I guess Sonny Gray gave up very few homers, so maybe right. they're just hoping that balances out somehow. But, you know, you're expecting, hoping that that he will be fairly good again. And the group as a whole, so on the preliminary projections that Fancraft shows right now on the depth charts for starting pitcher, the Cardinals with Gray are 12th, and there are only 12 teams that make the playoffs even these days. So that's not that great. And of course, that's before other teams sign some of the remaining top starters available and possibly leapfrog the Cardinals there or or put more distance between them. So it's not an exciting group. And probably after the disaster of 2023, Cardinals fans would be okay with just a competent, dependable rotation. But I don't know that it's quite dependable as much as any starters or pitchers in general are dependable these days. It's an old 
rotation. It, it yeah. almost reminds me of the Mets heading into last year mm. without some sure of the... I'm sure that will thrill <laughs> Cardinals fans to hear. <laughs> right, yeah. A rotation with a team that was terribly disappointing and then disassembled that rotation mid-year. They don't have anyone who's like 40 or pushing 40 the way that Verlander and Scherzer were, but right. they also don't really have anyone other than maybe Gray who had the upside that Verlander and Scherzer did or were thought to have. Yeah. And so this group, it's like Gray's 34, Michaelis is 35, Gibson and Lynn are 36. Matt's is 32. And yeah, you have some younger backstops to that group. You have Liberatore around and other guys who could step in potentially if someone goes down, which someone inevitably will because well. we're talking about pitchers here. But who knows if those guys will A, stay healthy and maintain their thus far reliable, dependable, if somewhat unexciting performance. So it could go south. It probably won't go as south as the 2023 rotation did. Yeah. But it's it's even as starting rotations go, there's some risk here. I don't know how, how sanguine I would feel about the Cardinals' hopes of getting through a season and contending with this group of guys. Well, and, you know, when you think about the upper level depth that they have, it's like a lot of... 45 types, right? So, you know, it's like Michael McGreevy's at AAA and Sem. They got Sem, Ben, <laughs> you know, they got Sem. And then they have this sort of weird like gap in terms of the, the timing of stuff where it's like they do have a couple of exciting starting pitching prospects that are like in the wings. They might not be ready to go for 2024. I think that we view some of them as 2025 types, but like Tink hence does loom, right? And they have Takoa Roby looming and like, oh, we looked really good in fall again. There's Gordon Graceffo. So like they have other young guys who are interesting and might end up being like impact starters for them later, but who knows where they're going to be and how ready they're going to be for like the 2024 campaign. So you're right. I think that like it, it there is a, there's definitely a higher ceiling on the rotations results, I think, compared to last year, just because I do think Gray is very good. I don't think that they're like super high in a on like a league adjusted basis, but it's definitely better and it does address a couple of their big needs. And like, you know, with Gray, if he is able to stay healthy, like they're going to end up with kind of a twofer, right? They're going to have quality innings over a lot of innings um, mm -hmm. and that will be very useful to them so like i think that this is good you know you you look at our like free agent depth charts for starters it's like okay they could have tried to go after snell but like maybe they don't want to spend snell money maybe they feel wary of lucas giolito maybe they feel wary of james paxton and then i don't know what their view of the international options was, although like arguably if what they wanted was strikeouts, like they shouldn't have gone after Yamamoto. But I'm just saying like it's, mm -hmm. would Jordan Montgomery have wanted to come back to mm -hmm. St. Louis? You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Like who knows? Michael Walker. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the, the sentence, Tink Hentz does loom. <laughs> he does loom. He, he does. does. He looms. I mean like how approximately? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, he I mean, looms. I guess he doesn't loom that large physically. He's he's not that big for a pitcher, but no, but like also, can we take a moment to appreciate like how 
great from a name perspective having Tink Hentz and Takoa Roby <laughs> in the same rotation is going to be like those mm-hmm. are great names what wonderful names great names yeah although the Tink is not a particularly intimidating nickname and so when I was thinking of him looming someone named mm. Tink I mean I, his actual name is is Markevian or Markavian and he was originally named Stinker when he was a kid, which turned into Tinker and then Tink, which is probably an improvement over over Stinker. I mean, if I were him, I would certainly consider that to be an upgrade. I don't think I knew the story of the the origin of the nickname. That's delightful. Mm -hmm. It is. Yes. So I'm sure if he turns out to be as good as he could be, then, you know, no one will uh, think of Tink as a non-intimidating nickname, but I'm just having a hard time just (laughs) someone named Tink and that evolved from stink and stinker it's just you know that that alone doesn't really do it for me but it it definitely does it from an entertainment standpoint well and the way that you could think about it ben if you were so inclined is to be like what a fun juxtaposition of like name expectation versus like presence on mount like that could be i could be Mm -hmm. so cool you know Yeah. yeah yeah it's true all right. Well, the Twins lost another starter to they free did. agency because Kenta Maeda signed with the Detroit Tigers yeah. for two years and $24 million. I think I had considered taking the under on his MLB trade rumors prediction, which was two years and 36 or something like that. And then I decided not to. I think I mentioned that. Now I'm kind of kicking myself for not doing that instead of taking Jordan Montgomery, mm. who I immediately thought better of that pick. But... We don't know. He hasn't signed yet. However, Maeda has signed, and I mentioned the money just because that seems like a pretty sweet deal for Detroit, I would say. Yeah. Not as much for Maeda, but he rebuilt himself or was rebuilt physically. He got Tommy John surgery, right, yeah. and had a new UCL and struggled in his initial comeback from that, then went on the IL with a tricep strain or whatever it was labeled, and then he came back and was quite good down the stretch. And that's a nice addition for Detroit. I guess the Tigers lose Eduardo Rodriguez, or at least uh, have not filled that slot yet, so they needed to do some work there. But they take a guy away from a division rival, and... Maeda, you know, he's he's solid. Like, he's been, I don't know if I'd say jerked around, but he was a starter, and then he was always sort of a swingman with the Dodgers, and he had that weird, long contract with all kinds of clauses and just an right. unusual structure, and he was always, I don't know if you could say being jerked around, but I don't know if that was his preference. It seemed like he wanted to start and often wasn't as much as he wanted to, but Generally, he's been quite effective when he's been healthy and when he's been used. And so now that he has been rebuilt to get him on a two-year deal for not a a high average annual value, I don't know if I'd say it's a steal, but it seems like a nice pickup relative to some of the other moves that have been made from the Tigers' perspective. Yeah, I thought I liked it quite a bit. I think that they are another team that if what they are serious about is like really contending next season could use, you know, a big impact top of the rotation guy. I don't know that that's Maeda, but like I think he's a a good pitcher and I think that he helps to 
um, sort of stabilize that group, which is at the moment really dependent on the young guys kind of either coming back from injury, coming into their own, taking a step forward. So I think that is good. I'm glad that he can like, he provides a lot of versatility from a usage perspective, but finally has a contract that will just like let him be a starter and have peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Like I always found his Dodgers deal to be so stressful because it just seemed so obviously vulnerable to manipulation in terms of usage and innings and all of the weird escalators and incentives that were present in it. So like, I, I'm, I'm very happy that he has gotten this deal. Even if I agree with you that like from a, from a cost perspective, like this might end up being a coup for the Tigers. I quite like this for them. It feels serious, you Mm. know, like it's not Mm -hmm. a huge move, but like, it's the kind of move you make when you're like, okay, we we gotta we gotta do something now. You know, it's not enough to to not do anything. We gotta do some stuff. So I yep. I quite liked it. I mentioned that the Cardinals rotation was projected to be twelfth best. The Tigers with Maeda eleventh best. Mm. So neck and neck there. Actually, I guess they're they're tied. Twelve point three projected war, but that rotation, I mean, if the Cardinals was like, okay, this is unexciting and maybe hopefully competent and dependable, like these are older guys with track records, right. the Tigers rotation is kind of the opposite of that. It's like, let's hope Scoobal continues to be good and stay healthy and then hopefully we finally get the Scoobal manning Mize trio together and healthy and pitching well, but... Who knows if that will actually happen? They have Reese Olsen, who who also has been good. So it's a much younger group, even though those guys have been highly touted prospects for a few years now. We've been waiting a while for that to hopefully all come together. But if it does, if it finally does... That'd be nice. It would be yeah. nice if the the Tigers could make that work with those guys and that didn't turn into the new Generation K or, you know, some class of highly vaunted pitching prospects who just fell apart, right? So other than Maeda, all those guys are in their mid-20s and there's just a lot of downside risk there too, but maybe more upside potential. I think that you might be right. I think you might be right. If I were to uh, I wouldn't place bets because I don't do that. That's stupid. But um, if I were and I were asked, which of these has the potential to like really exceed the projected expectations? It probably is Detroit, even absent. Not I, like I don't know that I view Maeda as like a oh one to one replacement for Rodriguez. But even yeah. if they don't do anything else, it does feel like you know it wouldn't shock me if those guys when they come back from being hurt or you know are able to take another step forward or like. You know, we at the end of the year, like, you know, the Tigers rotation ended up being really good. Mm-hmm. Could be true. The Twins, even after losing Gray and Maeda, their rotation is eighth best projected. Mm. Now, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe they'll we'll see. try to supplement that group. But they were starting from a, a high position because they had a really nice rotation this past year. Another team that has indicated it is interested in trimming payroll. Yes, that is true. So the last move that maybe merits a little discussion here is not a surprising one, but just sort of a satisfying one. The Dodgers are reuniting with Jason Hayward. I don't know if we can call it a reunion. They were never apart, but they have decided to stay together just on another one-year $9 million deal. And 
that marriage just worked out really well. You know, I, we said something on the Dodgers preview pod last year about like, man, if they fix Jason Hayward, well, then the Dodgers really will have done it. And part of it, I guess, was them fixing him or, or helping him regain some semblance of his old offensive potential. And some of it was just, you will never see a lefty again, <laughs> Jason Hayward, <laughs> right? So I don't know how much of it was uh, just making him a pretty strict platoon player and how much of it was rebuilding his swing. But it was just really nice to see him being a productive player on a 100-win team and now getting another deal when it looked like his career could be over when right. the Cubs cut him loose and decided to pay him rather than play him. It just seemed like he might be nearing the end of the line. And no, he's having now a, a productive part-time veteran mentor phase of his yeah. career. And he seems so well suited to that, both in terms of skills and also just in terms of his uh, ability to be a good guy that a lot of people yeah. like being around. Yeah, I think that, you know, does this change my expectations for like the Dodgers outlook next season? I mean, like, no, it doesn't really move the needle there at all. But you always like to see a guy who's able to have like a second win to his career continue to get opportunities. And yeah, it sounds like he is just like a really good clubhouse presence guy. And I'm stoked for him. It, it's nice. It's nice to see mm -hmm. you guys get another run or another another run as the case may be yeah they, they did re-sign him you know yes, so they they, ha they were technically apart i um, suppose yeah but, they were, but they not were, very far it turned right. out yeah. or for very long <laughs> they were exploring their options mutually and then they decided to, to remain together and i guess maybe they won't get the same production that they got out of him this year i don't know it, it was kind of a best case scenario and i guess his uh quality of contact stats were not quite as good as the actual sure. results and and he slotted in really well for them last year because of their middle infield vacancies and needing to shift Mookie into the infield all the time and then how can you replace Mookie with someone who's got about as good a glove as Mookie that's tough to do and so they had Hayward and when they were facing a, a righty pitcher then they could move Mookie to the middle infield that is not really how they drew it up they just right. were trying to make do with the Miguels in the middle right. infield, right? And so if they don't have to do that this year and, and they don't need or want to move Mookie around as much, then perhaps Hayward would be more pressed for playing time. But that just worked out really well just uh, for both of them. And, you know, it's it's funny because I don't know how much of, of it to give credit to the, the Dodgers for and Hayward for just uh, doing things differently and how much of it was his role because you could say, well, why couldn't the Cubs have just made him a strict platoon player and had him in that role? They could have known that he would still hit righties okay. And maybe they did. Maybe he just didn't fit as well in that role on their roster. Or maybe it's just that when you sign someone like that to a big contract and yeah. you're banking on them being a full-time, everyday, star-level player, yeah. then to kind of concede, well, that didn't work out, and now he's just a, a part-time platoon guy, maybe there's something about that that's just hard to do 
on that team. I, I guess if yeah. you're if you're cutting him loose and saying we'll we'll pay you to play for someone else, then I guess you're already conceding that it didn't work out so well. And it's not like it was a mystery to anyone that it didn't work out so well. Aside from the 2016 Game Seven pep talk, which who knows maybe made it worthwhile on its own, but on a, a performance uh, measurable basis, not so much. But maybe it's just it's tough to do that with a team that brought you on to do one thing and then to be in that city with that salary in that uniform and just saying, well, he's just a part-time player now. Maybe it's easier to do that when you've kind of been cast off and you're in a new uniform in a new city, right? Or, Or maybe it's just like once a team has released you, then you're like, well, I guess I've got to settle for a part-time right. role now. Whereas maybe it's, it's harder to come to terms with that if you yeah. haven't been given that wake-up call perhaps. So I don't know which it was, but, but maybe it's a little easier for that to happen with a change of scenery than it would have been for that to happen in Chicago. I think that it's probably a combination of both, right? That you are able to mentally adjust yourself to a different role and you go into a situation that isn't necessarily laden with expectation in the same way it is when you're supposed to be like the guy, right? Mm -hmm. So I bet it's a combination of, of both of those things. Can I say something that's unrelated to Hayward, but that I'm just grappling with because I'm looking at the... Dodgers payroll page on roster mm-hmm. resource. I know that it's not very much money, but like the decision to extend Miguel Rojas was really weird, right? That was a <laughs> weird choice to extend Miguel Rojas. Why did he feel the need to do that? <laughs> That's know. a weird choice. Like Miguel Rojas is fine. And like it was like five million bucks or something. It's not very much money at all. But also that was weird. It was yeah, a little weird. A little bit. Yeah. Anyway. I have a, a bone to pick with Bauman who oh. wrote the, the the write-up for Fancrafts on Hayward. Oh, Pick being the operative word because he said that Hayward can pick it, right? Which is yeah. it's true in the sense that he remains a very good defender. But yeah. pedantically, can oh, an outfielder you... be said to pick it? Because that to me, <laughs> that that seems like a an infield thing, right? Okay. I yeah, think. I get that. I mean, yeah. I don't want to look. Um, uh, do I want to throw uh, one of my coworkers under the bus? I sure don't. Do I want to make the point that I maybe didn't edit that piece? Um, no, like I don't. I'm not. It doesn't matter. I I get what you mean, but like you have to. I don't know. Do, would you have preferred he said can really scoop it? Can really yeah, snag can, it? Can really go get it? I don't go know. Go get it. Okay. One of those. Okay. Maybe because yeah. because uh, you prefer not to have to pick it if you're an outfielder, right? Right. I mean, pick it. I think of like it's a short hop, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe you're even backhanding the ball or something. But it's like it's a grounder, right? Like right. a picket to me, that's a ball that bounces. Yeah. And with an outfielder, ideally, the ball doesn't bounce because right. uh, you're so good that you went and and got it, right? You caught it yeah. before it fell. Maybe I'd accept it on a shoestring catch in the outfield, but borderline. I'm going to have to hash this out with with Bauman offline. Yeah, yeah I'll throw Bauman under the bus anytime on a, a th- podcast publicly, but <laughs> that stood out to me. <laughs> I think um, I, I would imagine that he's just ascribing it to be a more generalizable term for being talented at, at fielding. Right. Yes. I understood it that way. I, but it, I get, yeah. I get uh, if it had come down to it, I don't know that I would have been like, hey, can we tweet this? Mm-hmm. Um but I would understand asking the question, I guess. I yeah. guess. 
Yeah. 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 Well, just so I say something nice about Bauman, great headlines from him this yeah. week. Incredible work. He's, I think that it's um, useful to understand your own limitations as an editor. And I, I will admit that like headline selection is definitely one of mine, which one might argue is like a pretty profound limitation to have because it can have big SEO implications, I suppose. But like more than most places, we kind of let writers do their own headers mm-hmm. although we will like you know we'll be like hey so we got to change this <laughs> yeah. every now and again yeah. and i have said that to bauman i have at times been like hey this one's too much <laughs> mm-hmm. but he he comes up with some real bangers <laughs> he has been a raptor testing the fences in terms of what i will tolerate <laughs> yes. uh, in that space for sure but yeah um yeah yeah i don't know if citing a sufyan stevens song title in a Kenta Maeda transaction analysis is great SEO. I'm no, but it is a great headline. <laughs> it's highly entertaining yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. if I remember correctly from my days at BP, no less a luminary than uh, Sam Miller said, you know, sometimes you write jokes for the people who will get them. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that definitely ranks for me. It is useful sometimes for me to remember that other people's uh, musical tastes might not be as um, like twee. <laughs> Uh-huh. As mine or um, Bauman's, he would resent me calling them tweak because he would say they're good. Um, and they are, but they, you know, like sometimes, yeah. sometimes you're like, it's too fun. Like, yeah. Well, um, well, you had uh, you had the colon and then Tiger signed Kenta Maeda. So that's yeah. there, you know, the meat right. and potatoes. Like if you want to know what this is about beyond yeah. Michael Bauman's musical taste, then right. that information is there. And there's right. a subhead <laughs> that explains further. Yes. And yes. Uh, if you get the reference, great, then it brings a yeah. smile to your face. And if it doesn't, yeah. you're like, Detroit, lift up your weary head. What is that? And maybe what you is that? And then Google you Google it. it. Yeah, right. if you're a, you, an inquisitive type. Yeah, then you maybe learn about some new music. Although one time we went with a headline, not this postseason, but last postseason, that was a play on, on the lyrics to Dancing on My Own, mm-hmm. um, which I assumed and Bauman assumed everyone would know as um, the the sort of anthem of the Philadelphia Phillies. Some readers did not know that and were worried that we were like suggesting something terrible with uh, a play on I'm in the corner watching you kiss her and uh-huh. they got all worked up and i um suggested that they uh not because <laughs> it was fine actually <laughs> yeah so. we got some requests that you share the rejected bauman headlines on a patreon pod sometime so you can uh, just hmm, <laughs> jot those me, down <laughs> yeah some <laughs> of them are um you know like maybe yeah like maybe for maybe for patrons after dark yeah yeah i i definitely would want to um clear that segment with uh Mm -hmm. bauman before i did it because i wouldn't want to speak out of turn he'd probably Um, be happy to have them aired in in any form i would imagine yeah Yeah, i did not clear my pedantically picking a bone with his use of pick prior to this podcast but you know i know him well i think he'll be okay with it i think it'll be okay (laughs) Okay. All right. So I have just a a couple of follow-ups from the last episode that we did together. We did an email show last week. Lots of good questions and lots of good responses to those questions. And I wanted to share a few. First of all, we did a a stat blast about how award votes in some ways have become less competitive over time, and they've also hewed more closely to war. And we explored the reasons for that. 
did mention that manager of the year seems to be the exception to that, mm, that yes. there has uh, been more disagreement among voters on their ballots for manager of the year as opposed to less disagreement for the player awards. And listener Kelly wrote in to suggest I think the reason why there would be greater disagreement on manager of the year voting now than previously is that there are more contenders now than there used to be, a mm. result of expanded playoffs. To win manager of the year, one's team must make the playoffs or come very close. The number of teams that will fit this criterion increases as playoffs expand. So there are more managers who could reasonably win the award. If we accept this as the primary causal explanation for the trend you identified, we can also discount the notion that the award itself is somehow more interesting or complex or that there are better debates about who should win. There are just more people to consider, which results in a wider distribution of votes. That that sounds plausible to me. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I think that's right. And you still get years where you have – I mean, this year was so fascinating, right, to this question because we had – a lot of like variance in one league and much less in the other. And so mm -hmm. like that part of it, I find really interesting because, yeah. you know, it, it suggests that there is still the, the potential for consensus, but mm -hmm. then you have like the NL ballot where it was like, you know, it was really all over the place. And the AL ballot was like, you know, Brandon Hyde. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like right. almost exclusively Brandon Hyde. And then mm -hmm. you look at the NL ballot and it's like you got one guy who ends up winning has the same number of first place votes as Brian Snicker. People voting for Brian Snicker does make me feel better about selecting him as my postseason manager, even though I ended up having notes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's I, I think that more teams being in the you know, thick of it from a wildcard perspective definitely adds a complicating factor. I think that there are things that, that voters still care about year to year that at least winnow the field, right? Like, it's not surprising to me that Hyde got a lot of consideration last year um, because of the Orioles' improvement, but it was in the year where they actually pushed through that, you know, he he was able to secure manager of the year. So it's like, you know, there's some consistency, but yeah, it can be all can be all loosey-goosey. Yeah, loosey -goosey. I, I guess the bar for what constitutes a surprise team, if that's just making yeah. the playoffs, then the bar is lower than it used right. to be because more teams make the playoffs. So if that's what you have to do, like no one expects you to contend and then you make the playoffs, there are more teams that are doing that, but it's also less impressive to make the playoffs because you don't have to win that many games to make the playoffs now, as the Diamondbacks demonstrated. But still, I guess from a narrative standpoint, it does make all the difference to contend versus not content. And right. so that is a, a big feather in your cap as a manager when it comes to manager of the year voting. Also, another follow-up from listener Ben. We answered an email about a fan who mystically makes a team win or lose by yeah. attending, right? The team that they go to see always wins or always loses. And we discussed what would that team do to capitalize on that or prevent that from happening? And would they pay that person to go to games, whether as a marketing opportunity or because they believe that it will help them win? Or would they pay that person not to go to games to stay home, right? And Ben pointed out, regarding the fan whose team loses every game they attend, rather than trying to negotiate with their team to pay them to stay home, what if they negotiate with opposing teams mm. to see if anyone will pay them to attend? So that right. way, 
I feel like you would have potentially many more clients, right? Because uh, you could offer your services to any team that is going to be playing your team. Like if if they have an upcoming series with your team and they know, oh, if we just pay this fan to attend, then we will win those games, right? And it, it wouldn't matter as much to the team that's going to play one series against that team as it would to that team itself, which would be very motivated and incentivized not to have that fed at all its games, but you could have a bidding war of sorts, right? Like you could tell Team A, hey, Team B is uh, paying me X dollars to go. So now you have to top that to get me to stay home and not screw stuff up for you. Yeah. Or they would come together to have him killed. (laughs) That that could happen too. I do worry (laughs) that someone would be like, should we just kill that guy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about nefarious outcomes here, that occurred to you. What didn't occur to us when we were talking about this on the podcast is like gambling implications just because neither of us thinks or cares about that all that much. But I saw some of our listeners saying like, oh, isn't it cute and pure that Ben and Meg didn't even think (laughs) about like what would probably happen here, which is that like some sports book would pay these people to like move the lines or, you know, have uh, the outcome that they wanted so that they could just make bank on on all the bets that that were in because people did not know about this fan and their mystical powers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, it didn't occur to me. It didn't Mm-mm. occur to me. And then by far, the most responses we got were to our topic about baseball interceptions or turnovers, yes. right? We got a question about, well, baseball doesn't really have turnovers the way that other sports do because, you know, the defense starts the play and has the ball. And so how could we have turnovers or interceptions in baseball? And we threw it out to the listeners and said, suggest some possible interceptions or turnovers. How would that work in baseball? And we got many responses, and I will share some of them here. First of all, Robert said, I'd argue that the hidden ball trick and possibly pickoffs serve similar roles to turnovers Mm. in other sports. So he's saying, we already have turnovers of a type. The hidden ball trick which, as we've lamented, is all but extinct, certainly endangered these days at the big league level, and pickoffs. So sure. I, I guess there's something vaguely turnover-esque about those. Maybe yeah. it's like the, the defense can fight back after you make it to a base after you get on base then then they can trick you or they can catch you and it's a turnabout and it's a fair play right i I guess there's there's something interception-y about that i hadn't considered that yeah Yeah. i I think it's a fair it's a fair one yeah yeah it's not exactly what we were thinking about and so matt one of our patreon supporters in the discord group said I think having it be tied to outs somehow makes sense yeah. because that's the finite resource in baseball that seems right. to rather roughly, admittedly, most correspond to the finite resource of possession in other sports, right? Yeah. So if you can somehow rob outs from someone, then it, it's almost like taking the ball away from an opposing team. And so right. we had a number of suggestions that were outs related. Right. So for instance... Casey says, 
as a Royals fan, now, Casey, I believe that's uh, their name. Those were the initials. I don't know if that stands for Kansas City, but Casey is a Royals fan and says, during their 2014 and 2015 playoff runs, I had the realization that the best thing that can happen when your team is on defense is nothing. I was nervous enough that I would pace around the house, do dishes, take a lap around the neighborhood, etc., while the Royals were defending. The closest solution I came up with was allowing the defending team to score by defying run expectancy charts. Mm. So your pitcher loads the bases with zero outs, but the other team doesn't score at a run on defense. If it's one out, maybe half a run. So in other words, you take the run expectancy that the offensive team had, and if you deny them that, then you get that. (laughs) So it's not just that you keep them off the board, but you but get credit for the yeah. runs that that you prevented them from scoring that they quote unquote should have scored or deserved to score. What do you think about that? I like that. I I'd be I'd be interested in that. Yeah, I like that conceptually because it it does feel like when you have a Houdini like that, if yeah. there's a bases loaded, no outs situation, and it's a noble tiger for one team, but for the other team, it's it's extremely exciting when that happens because. Even if we're not consulting the run expectancy tables, right. we have a, an inner barometer. You know, we, we've watched a lot of baseball. You have some some informal <laughs> run expectancy table in your mind as a baseball fan. And so when you get out of that situation, in a way, you, you feel like you won something even without getting any runs or anything because you've already mentally been like, well, we're probably going to give up a run or two here. Yeah. And then when you don't, It's extremely exciting. So I guess you could say, well, you don't need to add any additional prize on there because it already feels like it's its its own reward that you escaped unscathed. But it would be extra exciting (laughs) if if you you got something. It wasn't just that you lost something or your opponent didn't get something, but, but you got something too. That'd be extra exciting. I wonder if it would change like, you know, if we we change the calculus for value of a particular skill, if suddenly being able to do this not only takes like an out off the board for them, but gives you a run or something, like yeah. does it alter who is valuable? Like yeah. well, how how big a shift does it have to be for it to alter our understanding of who's valuable? You right. know what I mean? Yeah, I guess you might be more motivated to bring in your relief face in that right. situation, even if it's an early inning, because you could gain some runs yeah. and you could put the game out of reach or or make it so that you won't have a high leverage situation later on because you've got an early lead. Or maybe it does put a priority on just getting the run across, yeah. right? I mean, you already want to get the run across, but like, I don't know if it leads to more small ball because you just don't want to get skunked, <laughs> you know? Right. You just, you just want to put the ball in play, but not get a double play. Like you just really want to push a run or two across and you could almost sort of sell out for a run or two rather than, I don't know if that would actually help you. Maybe yeah. that would be worse than just trying to get a hit the way that you normally would. But but yeah, maybe not swinging for the fences at least because you, you don't want to strike out and not get that guy in from third. So right. maybe it would change your approach or who you would want up at the plate in that situation. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Okay. Couple situations here along the same lines. Chris says, 
when a player robs a home run right. by leaping yeah. in the air, and it can be shown on replay that the ball would have been hit out, the team on defense gets whatever number of runs the home run would have generated. It should always be up to the defensive team to appeal for this, similar to replay appeals, though a spectacular leap and grab might draw an auto score from the umps. We got some other variations of that. So Justin, for instance, said my suggestion for an interception baseball is if there is a home run robbery with fewer than two outs, the inning ends right there and the defending team gets to bat. So in one of these versions, you get the runs that you robbed. Yeah. They just go directly to your ledger. And then the other one, the inning ends early, right? And you just get to to run all the way back into the dugout and celebrate and be at bat. I think that this one I like a lot. If only it feels the most actually interception-y, right? Because you does. are literally yes. intercepting the ball. And I think that this one would – I mean, like, robbing a home run is already very valuable, right? Yeah. Because you're taking runs off the board already when you mm-hmm. when you rob the home run. But I do wonder if it would be like, we got to get monsters out there. Like, everyone <laughs> needs to be as tall as Aaron Judge to play the outfield, and we're going to mm-hmm. make the – we're going to make the wall shorter. But, you know, you got to have that in balance because if you don't, then they can just take all of your home runs away. Real tricky. Yeah. But I like this one. I feel I feel embarrassed that I didn't think of this, candidly. Uh, once the email started coming in, I was like, yeah, I guess that's the closest mm-hmm. we get. Yeah. Because a home run robbery is, if not the best and most exciting play in baseball, it's, it's quite close, right? It's certainly one of the prettiest plays. It's one of the best kinds of highlights. Sure. And so... In that sense, it's kind of like the getting out of the inning where you think you're going to give up a lot of runs and then you don't. It's already really impressive and exciting and something to be celebrated. And so you almost don't need a bonus on top of that. But it is really exciting. And so maybe it should be really rewarding. And yes, it does feel like an interception and and what a swing in emotions and and obviously run expectancy if not only did you prevent the worst from happening, but you either get those runs yourself or just the inning is over because it's always, I think, better when the home run robbery is the last out of the inning and you get to run all the way back into the infield, right? Like slapping gloves and high-fiving all the way as opposed to just, I did that, but oh, we're still right. playing it. I got to stay out here for a while, yeah. right? Just like that celebratory jog, the triumphant yeah. run back into the infields, just accepting praise and uh, people applauding you the whole way. That's really fun. So it'd be yeah. great if it were just an automatic inning enter. It's like, you can't come back from this. I like that. Yeah, I I like it too. And like, then they could, you know, they could do dances, um, you know, like coordinated dances, everyone together, like, like defenses do sometimes when you have uh, Mm -hmm. an interception, particularly when you have like a pick six. So I I support that. I think that would be a fun and lively thing. It would be cool. It's also rare enough that it wouldn't be right. super disruptive. Yes, right? I agree. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, baseball has worked fairly well for a long time. So we don't necessarily need to reinvent everything about how you score or prevent scoring. Right. But, but yeah, this this is rare enough that it wouldn't completely rewrite the game, right? I mean, it's it's a high home run era and also a high home run robbery era, as I wrote about a few years yeah. ago. And I think that's a good thing yeah. because it's, it's not so common that 
any of the luster has been lost. You know, right. it, it's not like uh, position player pitching or something that was fun and then it happened too much and now it's a little less fun. A home run robbery is still as fun as ever, I think. But yes. because you have balls uh, carrying farther and guys uh, trying to hit home runs and everything, you also inevitably have more home run robberies and has to do with fence height too. And so I guess you would see, as you said, yeah, maybe Monstars in the outfield like this would be an even more prized and valuable skill than it already is. But I wonder whether it would affect ballpark construction too. Mm, Yeah. Like would it affect fence height if you're a team that doesn't have a lot of home run hitters but has uh, good outfield defenders? Then (laughs) would you want to just lower the fences as as low as you could get away with in order to – make it easier to have home run robberies. You can't have it too low or it it would be too easy and then it wouldn't be as fun. But I'd be in favor of some of that at least. It also strikes the right balance, right? Because you're... You don't want to tip things between, you know, the offense and the defense in any one direction, like, too strongly. And so I think you're right that, like, the rarity of it allows you to maintain a basic level of balance, even if it makes this one event more valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, You can make it more valuable and more entertaining without, you know, getting everything totally, like, off kilter in a way that I think would be really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about this one? Adam, Patreon supporter. The inning automatically ends if a fielder can catch the ball while holding hands with a teammate. <laughs> he says. See, I'm the target audience for this because everyone knows that I think that the guy should be able to kiss if they right. want to. Yeah. This is uh, not quite that kind of PDA, but no. it's uh, holding hands. And Adam says, might be mostly on pop ups, but there's still a risk of being less mobile while tracking the ball. Could lead to interesting new shifts to place more fielders closer to each other. (laughs) Like if you want to have the outfielders clustered so that they could be close enough to hold hands with each other. But yeah, it might be on the cans of corn or the pop-ups that have enough hang time that you would be able to get close enough to lock hands. But yeah, what if you could do that? Or or what if all three outfielders join hands and and then they form some run-saving entity, some sort of uh, Voltron? or something, Captain Planet, I don't know what it is. Maybe if if three or or more fielders link hands, then you get additional runs on top of that. I don't know. But maybe this would would at least be tender if it were to happen. Yeah, I mean, it would be tender. I think that it is even, even for me, a person who like, appreciates the the fun here maybe a little too much away from baseball <laughs> yeah um, you know maybe. to be what i would really be into but potentially like it could it could be cool we get more hand holding than ever just with the umpire sticky stuff inspections but that that's awkward hold hand holding it's right. like we don't want to do this but we have to right we'll yeah. make it as as quick and cursory as possible yeah with the outfielders you know maybe, maybe it would be a, a little more friendly but it's an idea here's another idea from lucas patreon supporter here's my idea for a baseball interception when a team is batting they get to stash one player outside the foul lines not counting the player in the on-deck circle. Let's call them the interceptor. Okay. The interceptor's goal is to try to catch a foul ball, and if they do so, they have to run around and avoid getting tagged by the player's fielding. While they hold the ball, the player batting gets to run the bases as if they had gotten a hit. When the interceptor is tagged, they drop the ball, which is now in play. 
I think this would add a fun playground-esque game of tag and increase action on the base paths. Obviously, some quirks here to work out. <laughs> yeah. But let me know what you think. Mm, I, I, it might be a little too, like, <laughs> I don't want to say unprofessional, like, uh, uh, in a judgmental way. Although, I sure. guess it is kind of in a judgmental mm-hmm. way. But you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It might be a little too much uh, yeah. in that direction. Yeah, entertaining. Yeah, maybe in a, a Savannah Bananas style sure, context, yeah, yeah. more so than in MLB. But uh, I like your thinking, Lucas. Yeah. I mean, would be amusing in the same way that, say, uh, someone who who runs on the field and eludes security can be sometimes amusing, oh, yeah. even though like <laughs> they shouldn't do that. <laughs> and you definitely don't want them to do it very often. Like, no, you, know. you don't want that, and you also like don't want them to go near the players like if you have to streak or run onto the field like at least don't scare anyone <laughs> you know like don't make yeah. a beeline for any players like yeah don't if it's do more stuff about like, like with acuna yeah like yeah, is this guy bad. gonna get creamed you know like right. is this guy gonna get leveled or can he somehow escape into the stands that can kind of be entertaining and so this would be similarly like yeah. because everyone likes a pickle and a rundown but the problem with that is that you can't really go outside the base paths and so here you would just have free reign and that would be kind of fun to watch someone really athletic like you might have just a, a designated super athletic fast person like this might be a Terrence score kind of role yeah and they're the interceptor, right? And it's just, you're it, <laughs> you know, like catch me if you can. Yeah. That would be kind of fun. Uh, it would be not, kind of fun. It's not really baseball, but it no, would be No, it's not fun. really baseball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tag is like a professional sport now. So if, if that's what you want, you can watch is that. Is it a professional sport? It is. Yeah. They have uh, really? all kinds of courses set up and everything. What, um, what is, um, how, what? What does one realize from a, a salary perspective as a professional tag player? <laughs> that I could not tell you. I, I, I doubt it's highly lucrative, but it is, you know, I, I will see it like on TV at the gym, like uh, huh. <laughs> World Chase Tag or whatever okay. it is. Like there, there are leagues that are, you know, on reputable networks and uh, people just swinging around and and taking corners and uh vaulting over things and it is it's fun to watch i, okay. I kind of like it yeah okay well okay. you know you know uh, uh different strokes for different folks i guess <laughs> exactly yeah. raymond says let's see a turnover is when you go from offense to defense prematurely either because you messed up or because the defense did something somewhat impressive so in baseball the messed up would be an inning ending two plan for somewhat impressive, I would vote for turning and ending, inning-ending double play. So he's arguing in favor of, like, that's the closest to uh, what we already have. Mm-hmm. I guess similar to Robert's argument that it's a hidden ball trick or, yeah. you know, a, a pickoff. Maybe just a, an inning-ending two plan or double play, I guess, could be kind of like a turnover. It's like, oh, good things were happening, and then we did something bad or the defense did something good, and now it's their turn to be the offense, right? So yeah. I guess that's kind of a close equivalent. And now the the last most popular suggestion, along with the home run robbery one, as Chris succinctly stated, base runners can have gloves. If they catch a ball on the fly, one out is removed and they advance one base. Or as Caitlin, Patreon supporter, put it, it made me think of base runners being able to catch the ball 
So if a runner already on first catches instead of the first baseman, it counts as a home run or at least gets the batter on base and advances all runners. I know that's the opposite of a defensive interception, but it would be interesting and possibly dangerous. Yeah, that's almost like a, an offensive interception yeah. in a way. But a lot of people suggested this. So on the Discord, user Trexer82 also said, my not well-considered idea for a turnover rule in baseball is that if a runner cleanly catches a batted ball, they and all other runners are automatically entitled to the next base, and either an out comes off the board or next half inning begins with one out. Naturally, the runner would not be allowed to interfere with a fielder's attempt to field the ball, can't leave the baseline, can't touch a fielder or threaten to do so. But let's say the infield is playing back with two outs and one on. The runner snags a grounder before the second baseman can get it. All of a sudden, it's two on and one out. And then the last person who wrote in about this listener, Ben, and Patreon supporter, Ben, and he, I think, had the most thorough consideration of this concept. So here's an idea for adding an interception rule to baseball. A base runner can intercept a live ball. I see this happening two ways. A runner, instead of jumping over or otherwise avoiding a nearby ground ball, could intercept it or... After an attempted steal, pickoff, or other close play at a base, a runner could snatch up a ball if the fielder doesn't have control of it. Once the base runner has control of the ball, the hitting team can do as they wish, so runners can proceed home to score. A couple rules. One, a base runner can intercept a live ball after it is hit fair by a batter. The base runner cannot leave the base path and cannot come in contact with any fielder during an attempt to intercept the baseball. And two, if a base runner is safe on base, they can intercept any live ball provided they not leave the base and the ball is not under control of a fielder. And Ben says this is a little different from an interception or turnover in football, basketball, et cetera, because the defense doesn't uh, become the offense after the interception. But control of the ball does still temporarily change. As was raised during your podcast, it is a fun thought experiment because it draws attention to a distinct feature of baseball compared to many other sports. The defense, not the offense, has control of the ball during play, except for the brief moment a batter makes contact. When this interception rule is inevitably adopted, perhaps once a player successfully reaches base, they'll receive a glove instead of a sliding mitt. <laughs> what do you think? I do think it's a little too unlike baseball as we play it. But, it is, yes. Yeah, but it does sound fun. I mean, it would add a, an interesting bit of something to what's going on, but yeah. I, it might be too much, you know? Yeah. Initially, I was going to say, well, it sounds a little dangerous, but if you give yeah. them gloves. <laughs> yeah. The, now, I don't know what that would do to base running if the – because ultimately, it might actually hurt you because if the base runner is preoccupied with fielding or catching a batted ball, not only are they wearing a glove as opposed to a sliding mid, an oven mid or whatever, but also they would have to be like really paying attention to yeah. the batted ball and, and yeah. trying to track it. Like, of course, the base runner is always going to have one eye on the ball because they have to know is it safe for me to advance and how far – but here, it's like you'd never get a good jump on anything, right? And you'd have to decide, do I want to just run <laughs> or do I want to try to face the batter here and make a play on this ball, even though it would be tough for me to advance if I don't make that play, right? So there'd be kind of an interesting tactical calculus there. Yeah. there. I mean, like, 
I think a lot of these would entail an interesting tactical calculus, but mm-hmm. we do want to balance it, right? We want to balance it against, I don't know, like it still being appreciably and noticeably baseball. And I, mm-hmm. I think that this kind of goes a too far in the other direction. Yeah. It, it would put a premium on athleticism because now it would be beneficial to be a good fielder even when you're on the bases. I, I, I guess most players, I, I guess speed and athleticism and defensive ability often go arm in arm, right? Yeah. But like if you're a bad base runner and now you're also a bad fielder and because you have to do both of those things when you're on base like it wouldn't just be clogging the bases like it would it would go beyond that because now you wouldn't be able to make plays on batted balls either while you're on base right. so <laughs> maybe that nudges things in the direction of the the type of player we prefer but yeah this is uh, pretty disruptive and just yeah. a, a few final shorter ones peach said for turnovers in baseball you could have the offense be able to steal outs back so players can choose to remain on the bases if they're out. And if they cross home, their out is removed. They don't score runs. However, they can also make another out. So you can just uh, decide to get an out back, basically. But that's, I think, a little different from the turnover idea, probably. That's just kind of how are you going to apportion your your outs and are you going to give them more outs? But that's uh, that's like your personal choice. So it's not really something that uh, I don't know if that, you know, the defense doesn't force you to do that or isn't really involved. So that doesn't quite fit the description for me. Robert said the defense can record a a fourth or fifth out, thereby subtracting from the current offense's future outs. For example, bottom two, two out, runner on first, batter grounds out to short, who steps on the bag and throws to first. While not necessary in our game, the extra throw beating the batter to first steals an out from the offense when they bat again in the bottom of the third, meaning the defense would only need to record two outs. This means each ball in play must reach a dead ball status. All runners have to hustle every play. More extended action, shorter games. Starters would go further into games. Teams might need to be extra cautious how they put the ball in play with two outs. Again, interesting idea, but yeah. I don't know if it, it quite is a turnover or an interception. It's, it seems a little bit different, you know, talking about like getting outs that uh, transfer across innings or saving outs across innings. I guess hypothetically, you can have a fourth out in an inning, which Sam just wrote about in his Substack. But again, this is a, a little bit different. And I will end with two more related. The first one is from Patrick, whose way of introducing interceptions to baseball hinges on a new position I would call the designated fielder. Each half inning, the offensive team would send out their designated fielder to play alongside the defense. He could stand anywhere on the field and could change locations from batter to batter. He may not physically interfere with defenders to avoid injuries, but if he fields the ball first, he has recorded an interception and the batter is automatically safe. Okay, along similar lines, this one is from Ben, a Patreon supporter, who says... Here's a rule slash hypothetical that's been kicking around in my brain for a while, which I think is relevant to the idea of baseball's equivalent to an interception, the defense on the defense rule. In short, in certain situations, the hitting team is allowed to send one player out into the field with the goal of interfering with the fielders and allowing runners to safely reach base or take extra bases. 
This is, I guess, not unlike that interceptor idea, but it's a little different in that this isn't necessarily about like stealing the ball in foul territory or running away with it, but you could distract the fielders. So Ben says, I imagine there's a lot you could do to disrupt the fielders, including intercepting fly balls to prevent fielders from catching it for an out, hence the relevance to this discussion. However, I do think we need a few restrictions to keep it from being too powerful, being used too frequently, and to maximize the chaos. When can you deploy an anti-fielder? It could just be a one-inning-per-game limit, which would be straightforward enough. However, my proposal is this. In any half-inning, the fielding team has the option to only send out eight defenders, holding one in reserve. The following half-inning, that player takes the field with the other team as the anti-fielder. Maybe also limit each player to only be able to anti-field one inning per game. What can and can't they do? There are a few things that jump to mind that I'd like to legislate against. Grabbing and holding the ball, since that would pretty much just be an automatic home run. Standing in front of the first baseman and blocking throws, since the first baseman is limited in where they can be standing to get an out. I feel this would make routine ground balls too valuable. And bunting to an anti-fielder stationed on the infield grass. (laughs) That would be like a, a pass, sort of like an offensive pass in baseball. In light of that, Ben says, I propose the following restrictions. The anti fielder is not allowed to hold the ball or trap it anywhere in or under their body. They are, however, allowed to slap or kick a ball on the ground, bat a ball out of the air, use their body to prevent a fielder from getting to the ball, like a soccer player, protecting a ball that's rolling out of bounds for a corner kick, etc. Two, the anti-fielder cannot make a play on the ball while on the infield dirt. Outfield grass and infield grass are both fair game, and they can cross from one to the other, but they can only make deliberate contact with the ball while on grass. And third, on a bunt, the anti-fielder can't play the ball on the infield grass either. If a bunt reaches the outfield, though, then it's fair game. What if their turn to bat comes up? I think my preference would be to have the current pitcher bat for them, but you could also just skip their spot in the order or have them hit and send in a replacement anti-fielder. If this rule were in effect, very unlikely at the MLB level, of course, but I think it's got some Savannah Bananas potential. Where do you think you would position your anti-fielder? What sort of player do you think would be ideal for the role? Any other restrictions you think would be in order? And this, again, it does sound... Fun, right? Yeah. It's it's not baseball, exactly. No. I don't want it in our current version of baseball in these leagues, but I would watch it. If you did this somewhere in an indie ball game or Savannah Bananas or whatever, I think it would be fun. And I guess it, it could be someone who's going for maximum distraction, yeah. like a, a Max Patkin clown prince of baseball sort who's just like trying to distract you, get in your way, do something funny. This would be like violating the, the Eddie Stanky distraction yeah. rule of like doing jumping jacks in front of, you know, like this would be the complete opposite of that. It would just be, yes, you can distract anyone at any time. Like hopefully it wouldn't lead to a lot more injuries. Like you, you couldn't have them be positioned uh, by the pitcher or something like you i don't think you would want to mess with the the pitcher on a comebacker that could be dangerous unless they're like protecting the pitcher but i i kind of like the idea i think it would be fun i don't know how you'd handle it from a a broadcast perspective oh yeah would you have like like a dedicated camera on the anti-fielder 
I think just to you keep would. track of where they are and what they're up to. Yeah, you'd need like the Otani cam on the NHK broadcast. That's just the camera's always on Otani, no matter what he's doing. You'd need maybe a picture-in-picture picture or a split screen or something, which uh, people lament like we don't know where the defenders are positioned well enough now because we can't see that with the typical center field angle. But you would need to see where the anti-fielder was. So you would definitely need at least some some small window focusing on them at all times. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, it could be funny to yeah. not have that and then have them be like, where did that guy come from? But <laughs> right. I think it would be distracting. Although it would be distracting to have a dedicated camera too. Like you just yeah. be like watching that guy the whole time. The whole point is distraction, but I guess right. not not distracting the viewer so much. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what type of uh, person. It just could be someone who is very silly or just someone who's very speedy like the Terrence Gore type, right? So yeah, I mean, look, we asked for suggestions and yeah. we got them. <laughs> So yeah. this was this was what I wanted. This was what I expected. This was what we asked for. So thanks to everyone for writing in. Thank you. All right. We can probably leave this baseball turnovers topic here. I'm wary of inviting another torrent of emails, but I will read one more that came in after we recorded. This is from Jeff, Patreon supporter, who said, as I understand it, football turnovers are either fumbles or interceptions. An interception is the defense stealing the ball and cutting short the opposing team's offensive turn. Doesn't baseball already have a version of this? When a hitter hits a ball into foul territory, even though it's out of play, the fielders are allowed to try to intercept it before it hits the ground. If they manage to make the catch, they've effectively stolen an out, thus cutting short, if not ending, the opponent's offensive inning. Is this not akin to an interception? He goes on to question, if the ball's out of play from an offensive perspective, shouldn't it be so for the defense too? This is something we talked about on episode 2059 in the thick of our baseball exceptionalism series when we were talking about qualities that make baseball unique or unusual, foul territory, the intermediate zone between inbounds and out-of-bounds, where equipment can reside and non-participants in the play can be, even though it technically is in play. It's a weird thing about baseball, but I suppose there's something to the suggestion that there's an interception-esque quality to catching a ball in foul territory. Thanks, Jeff. Can't say thanks, Jeff, without feeling like I'm on the bear. Also, in case anyone was wondering, I relayed my critique to Michael Bauman about saying an outfielder can pick it, and he said, I'll accept that criticism. Glad he didn't mind my picking on him. If you want to help support such pedantic points as this, you can fund Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. CM, Brendan Pulsford, Paul Denyer, Greg Loon, and Andy Gran. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, one of which we have recorded for November and will be releasing soon. It's our 25th bonus episode. Takes us about two months to do 25 episodes of Effectively Wild. So if you sign up for Patreon at the appropriate tier, you can get months worth of me and Meg, just in case there's not enough Effectively Wild for you. You also get access to playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships, prioritized email answers, and possible appearances on the podcast, so much more patreon.com slash effectively wild 
If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can still contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at fancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. You have until December 10th to sign up for Effectively Wild Secret Santa. Check the last link on the show page or in your podcast player. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then.